Hello, friends, and welcome to the Flip It On Its Head podcast. I'm your host, Reese Colchin, and I have a guest today that, quite frankly, might make you all feel like slackers. My guest, Cameron Sellers, was born an orphan in Seoul, South Korea in the late 1960s. He was adopted by an American couple, raised in Arizona, and after high school, promptly joined the Army National Guard, not knowing then that he would turn into a career military officer in the Civil Affairs Division. And after a long, illustrious career defending our great nation, he decided to retire and, wait for it, continue his life of service by attending seminary and becoming a candidate for the priesthood. I mean, I know a lot of people who've made career changes, but none as remarkable as Cameron's. Why is this important to me? Well, besides being my boy, Cameron is the finest example of an American that I personally know. And I'd take the Pepsi challenge against anyone else's example any day of the week and twice on Tuesdays. As someone born to parents who chose this country, I know very well the deep-seated patriotism that those who have emigrated here feel, but I can only imagine Cameron's love for a country that not only took him in, but gave him the opportunities that he maximized at every point in his life so far. And that he and I share a faith is no small thing, but he's using his faith as another avenue to live a life of service, and that's something truly admirable. But if you strip away the scope of Cameron's journey, you'll see that he's just a guy that's making a career change. And he's got some choice advice to share about how he's handling it all. So, after the break, former U.S. Army Colonel and current seminarian Cameron Sellers on the Flip It On Its Head podcast. I am so excited to welcome my guest, Cameron Sellers, uh, man, you and I have known each other for a little bit, and I am so grateful to you for taking the time to join me here on Flip It On Its Head. Welcome, my brother. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me a guest. I wanted you on for so very many reasons, uh, and I will get to the meat and potatoes of that, but w- would you please start by sharing with everybody uh, where you were born and how you wound up growing up where you grew up. So I'd like to always say that it's a... Uh... A very unique story, but very, very common for Americans that we tend to be, uh, America is a place that uh, always is full of unique stories and uncommon stories, but that's what makes it very common because we're a country of immigrants, uh, immig- a country of different people. So I was adopted by an American family in a culture where adoption is accepted. I was abandoned when I was, a, uh, when I was one, I was put in the foster cares. For whatever reason, my mother had to give me up for adoption. This was back in 1968. So Korea at that point was extremely poor, still trying to recover from the war. And I was one of many babies that ended up in the uh, orphanage system. And um, as part of that system, there's I believe there's like a million babies, uh, uh, Koreans who were adopted overseas during that time period. And America was the place that most of them came to. And I was one of them through... Uh, hold adoption agency and it was uh, I was adopted by family the Sellers family so that's my surname in Arizona and my dad was in Korea at the time opening up the Motorola plant he saw the need and he went back to his uh, to my mom and said I think God wants us to adopt where in Arizona did you grow up well I, I grew up in uh, Mesa and what was unique about that time because this was back in the 70s 70s and the 80s is, is that uh, Mesa was actually a predominantly a Mormon town. So 
you know, people talk about being a minority. I felt like I've been a minority my whole life. And so <laughs> yeah, here it was a, a Korean and people that was a Navajo, uh, growing up in Arizona in a suburban area where middle class white suburbans were Mormons. We were Baptists and we had no idea, you know, I just figured we're my this minority group because all the Hispanics were Catholic. <laughs> this is awesome, man. You're a Korean adopted by a Baptist couple in a Mormon town with a bunch of Latino Catholics and you're and you're confused for a Navajo. Wow, man. Yeah, it was it and that's just what it was back then in the seventies. And since then Arizona has grown. And even Mesa has changed over time. It has, it has become a lot more multicultural. There are the areas that, that I remember have now become Asia town. Uh, Mesa as a town has embraced it. They put up signs called Asia, Asia village or Asia town and has a lot of Korean restaurants, uh, Vietnamese, Japanese, Chinese. And so it's gone through a big transformation. And I don't believe, uh, Mormon is the predominant religion anymore. In the city, yeah, they, they, the spread has been overtaken by uh, uh, Catholicism. So I grew up there and I left in uh, 1986. I had joined the uh, Army National Guard because I needed money for college. And so I shipped out that year and came back, finished college, got my commission, went into the Army Reserve. And then when I got mobilized for Bosnia, um, that took me away for about a year. And then when I came back, 9-11 happened. About four years or three years into the war, the Army said, if we uh, send you to graduate school, would you come back into the Army? And that's, you know, that, that sent me back into the Army for another, uh, until I retired about three years ago. Uh, you've said a lot, and I want to touch on all of it. But before we move on from your childhood, so uh, first of all, I, I think you know this. You and I are the same age, right? We are Gen Xers. We were both born in 1968, right? So when you say, when you talk about growing up in the 70s and 80s, man, I feel you because <laughs> I was right there. I was all about watching first run Happy Days in Laverne and Shirley, like I know you did. I remember when Mork and Mindy came on the air, like I know you did. And all those Brady Bunch reruns that we grew up on, like I know you did. But uh, listen, growing up in in the Southwest in the 70s and 80s, uh, did you feel at all tied to your Korean culture? And did your folks do anything to uh, to, to sort of uh, uh, endorse that and, and have you feel a connection to that? Uh, well, God bless their heart. My parents tried the best. They offered to uh, set up uh, private lessons to learn Korean. Did I want to get to know my heritage? Did you, should I do a... Um, uh, pen pal experience, but you know, when you're that young, all you care about is being accepted by your, your friends in the neighborhood. I looked around them, they're all white. So I wanted to be white. I wanted to be American. So my parents did the best they could and they just, it just wasn't going to happen. It was one of those things in which the individual or, you know, you know, myself would have to want to embrace that. When I was young, uh, I was like that when I was in high school or college, I was trying to get it, you know, get uh, immersed into American culture. It wasn't until later on and when I went back to Korea, 2007, that I really began to have a connection to my heritage. And that heritage grew strong over those years. And that's why I asked to be uh, sent over there. And so 
you know, um, I'm very thankful that I got to the last six years of my career in the army over in Korea. So I felt like I got to go full circle. Yeah, man, you're, what you're talking about and what you're describing is the assimilation. And I know you know this, like I'm, I'm a first generation American. I'm the product of a South American mother and a Middle Eastern father. My mother spoke nothing but Spanish at home, but my dad was one of those immigrants that was like, man, we're here, talk English. So any Farsi I knew at all, because he was from Iran, uh, it just completely escaped me when there was no reason to travel back to Iran after the Iranian revolution, the Islamist revolution in 1979. So I understand the uh, the assimilation that immigrants do and the wanting to adopt your uh, your new culture. But as a young person, man, that uh, the, the wanting to fit in thing, uh, which is something that everybody goes through uh, and yours was just tinged with wanting to uh, to fit into uh, uh, an area that you didn't see a lot of faces like yours. Well, let's flash flash forward because you said 86 and yes, that's when we graduated high school, right? Uh, and you went into the National Guard. Talk a little bit about what the, uh, it sounds like the pull to join the uh, the armed forces was about getting money for college. But when you got in, what was your initial experience? And did you have any sense that you would become a career uh, army officer? I think I, I came into the Army National Guard for a couple of reasons. So it's not, uh, was it the primary reason, uh, money for college? But I just had an uh, inkling to serve because I was well aware of uh, the American commitment during the Korean War. So uh, at some point, I really wanted to get back. And so I thought I knew I was going to be spending some time because I knew that was something that I needed to do. And my dad was very good about instilling that type of patriotism. So was the answer was, would I have ever become a colonel? I think when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a general. And then, you know, you get the rude awakening when you get into uh, basic training and you wonder, wow, I'm a private. And is this something I really want to do? And then when you start to get, when I went into ROTC um, to get commissioned, I began to realize that I really wasn't made to be in the Army. I wasn't made to be in, uh, in the, what we call the stereotypical Army. And so that was a real struggle to figure out who I was at that point because I wasn't, I wasn't the stereotype or that we would think that you should be in the Army for and so I, at that point, I didn't think I was going to be made in the Army. So I thought when I went, in, uh, went into the reserves, I could probably do that time and get out. But it wasn't until I discovered civil affairs as a branch, which was for most people that didn't even hear of, let alone a lot of the Army didn't even know what it was. But that's where I hit my stride. And I realized this was something that I was really good at, that I had talent in that it was very uniquely different for the rest of the army. So I was made for it because I was so anti-army in that sense that I fit into this branch. And at the time, the army realized they needed people in civil affairs. So it became one of the most deployed branches in that time period, always being called up to go on the peacekeeping missions or all over the world. And I always tell people, I didn't, I fell in love with civil affairs that just happened to be in the army. Can you explain what civil affairs, particularly in the military, means and what you did? So the be probably the best way to think about it, we took care of the civilians on the battlefield. Because of the uh, Geneva Convention that we signed up for, battlefield commanders are responsible for everything in their battle space, or what we call their territory. 
If military commander occupies Charlotte, North Carolina, he's responsible for every building, every human being in that area. So because he's so busy, he uh, we created the Civil Affairs Corps to interface and make sure that the civilian population had the basic essentials. We, we started to get into this thing called uh, non-kinetics, meaning how do you defeat your enemy by uh, using uh, non-lethal means. It's like, I can shoot my enemy or I can feed him. And if he turns because I feed him, it's the same thing as shooting him. And so that becomes a what we refer to as a force multiplier in the battlefield because if I can convince one guy and he convinces 10, well, that's 11 people I don't, I don't have to shoot. We learned that over the long haul is you can't kill everybody. You have to engage them. And so what that requires is you, requires is you have to know people, you have to know cultures, you got to have a little bit of understanding of language. So that's what civil affairs does. And that's what I was really good at. Civil affairs sounds remarkably like the opportunity to serve your country while also taking care of others, which, uh, you know, now that you're looking to get into the business you're looking to get into, uh, whether you're taking care of their their actual beings or now taking care of their souls, uh, that definitely sounds like something that you are suited for, man. You mentioned Bosnia. Did you do civil affairs work there? I did. The guy who mentored me through that whole thing, basically, I remember he told me, he said, look, use this as a learning experience built from this. And um, that's when I realized that um, I could do something in the Army and I, and I could do it well. And then when I went uh, to Afghanistan, when I was doing civil affairs activity and doing the things that would make civil affairs, civil affairs officers in that capacity. The skill set that you developed in the military, mm-hmm. how did that skill set in your experience uh, shape your uh, path and the role you're looking to assume now as a seminarian and all the work you're doing to eventually become a Catholic priest? What was What's some of the connective tissue between what you did in the Army and what you're trying to get done now? Uh, the purpose, if you look at the purpose of it, there really wasn't an association, but there's a lot that you can transfer over and raise skill sets. Um, one thing that the military has that that's also shared with the priest formation is this idea of, of, uh, of a, a professionalism or calling. So there, there's a craft in uh, we call it soldier craft or in the priest, we call it priest craft. But the difference between is I can go into the army. I can choose to go into the army. You don't choose to go become a priest. You're called into the priesthood. Probably one of the big things that nobody wants to talk about, the slugging it out and just having the grit to get through the bureaucracy in the army will prepare you for the priesthood because that part of it doesn't change. That's that's probably the biggest thing that carried over because I learned to be, because the civil affairs wasn't well respected within the army, yeah, I had to be a scrapper. The army taught me how to make decisions and also how to take responsibility. Then also the, being an army officer and being in civil affairs made me engage people. And by engaging people, Christianity taught me how to love people. Talk about this story once. This one man asked me, he said, man, you're really old to be going into the priesthood. Were you fighting it for your whole life? And I told him, no. God wasn't, God wasn't dealt with me at preparing me to become a priest. In the last six years of my career in the army, better prepared me for the priesthood than the, the first 26 years. And um, had I left 
the army 11 years ago when I felt the calling to the priesthood, I would have missed all of that opportunity to learn. God has given me everything I ever wanted, just never on my time. Man, listening to you reminds me of that old expression, and I'm sure you've heard it. If you ever want to make God laugh, you ever want to crack the old man right up, go ahead and make plans. That is true. On the other side of the break, Cameron talks about the grit and determination that he learned in the Army and how he relies on that skill set in his new life as a seminarian. He'll also talk about listening to his instincts and trusting the small, quiet voice for God on his new journey. You're listening to the Flippin' on Its Head podcast. Looking over your CV, uh, you spent uh, you spent time at the Naval Postgraduate School, United States Army War College. All that experience also put you in a position to do something that brought you and I together. You spent some time as a consultant for a couple of Hollywood writers we know, uh, David Weddle and, and Bradley Thompson. How did you get hooked up being a uh, a combat consultant for our old friend David Weddle on a great show, Battlestar Galactica? If you haven't watched it, I encourage everyone to cue it up because it's awesome. How did you end up being a, a, a consultant for uh, for David and Bradley? You know the back. The quick backstory to that was that was Karen Gutierrez. Uh, Karen Gutierrez was the one because she was one of my professors and she was my thesis, one of my co-thesis advisor at the Naval Plus Graduate School. Bradley and David came up to be and they wanted to know. So they came up and they got our experience. And I remember Bradley's wife was really interested in the civil military dimensions of what I did because it reflected in the show. There was a third uh, screenplay writer, I forgot her name, but she was up there. She was really kind of apprehensive about meeting us because she she had the stereotype of what we would be. And then she realized, holy cow, you're just like the rest of us. And yeah, you're all a bunch of nerds. We're a bunch of nerds. <laughs> and then another thing too was really interesting was we never met anybody in Hollywood and we realized, <laughs> okay, people in Hollywood look like us and they do have <laughs> yeah. the same foibles as us. I tell you, it was great. And you mentioned Karen Gutierrez. Karen is... Like I love Karen right down to her chewy chocolate center. She and her wonderful partner, uh, Rodney, are two of the best people. And she is she's truly one of the smartest people I've ever met. Uh, but uh, it was at one of David and Risa Weddle's frack parties, the parties they put together to screen the show for for friends uh, that uh, you and I met. I actually met you and Karen at, at, uh, at the same time at one of uh, David and Risa's parties. And when I found out that y'all were helping them. And because she taught at the Naval Postgraduate School, I was fascinated to talk to you because I lived in LA. Most of the people I knew worked on the Hollywood side. I never got to mix with folks like you. So you and I just hit it off famously. And uh, and knowing that you were still in the military, uh, you know, I also, you know, you and I got to know each other. I don't think you were a colonel at the time. I was a major then. So, you were. That's right. Yeah. When I met you, you were you were a major in the United States Army. Uh, and uh, talk about the promotion that took you up to Colonel, man. That actually, as long as you don't uh, do something stupid, you usually can get that. You get promoted. But, you know, I think for me it was uh, I uh, being in civil affairs and doing it that was because I was very good at doing that. Natural progression of getting promoted was uh, inevitable. I remember when my name came out on the promotion list. We're in Korea, and I remember 
then Brigadier General Mevici, he, he was going to make sure he was going to promote me in Korea. He just thought that would be the greatest thing was to see that fall. And so he hounded the Human Resource Command at Fort Knox. He was just unrelenting. We were there for an exercise for three weeks, and they better get those orders over. And he got it. I remember uh, the day up, they said, we got the orders, we're promoting you now. And so they promoted me at Yongsan Garrison in the middle of Seoul. And that's where I was born, so it was really worth a full circle. But this time around, I was able to find uh, a lady who raised me in the orphanage. And so she was able to come over and uh, promote me as well. So she was there. Dr. Cho was there. They were there for my... Because my, at this point, my parents had passed on. And I went and headed down uh, my uh, uh, mama son because I wanted to let her know that I was good. Her name was Molly. And that's when I met Dr. Cho, who's still alive. And I, I saw her last August. And uh, she was the doctor who would go through the hospitals and pour, uh, pull, uh, pull babies out for adoption. And she saw me and she she pulled me out. And so I always uh, think of her and uh, talk about how she changed my life. But, you know, both those ladies were there and they were able to see me get promoted. And that was, uh, that was a great experience to get promoted uh, in Korea. And then I also got to retire in Korea. So talk about full circle. Cameron, you know, the... the- the steps that that people take in when they're just doing their jobs, but doing so knowing that they're going to impact the life of a child, they could not possibly have fathomed how it would come, as you said, you said it multiple times, coming full circle to be promoted to lieutenant colonel, to be promoted to colonel in the United States Army in South Korea, where you were from. Uh, I am certain that uh, that your parents were smiling down on you, and that I'm so glad that you that you found Molly and Dr. Cho, these people that had a remarkable impact on your life. And now, <laughs> after service to our nation, after doing everything you did in civil affairs to help keep secure the Korean Peninsula and and defend our nation at home and abroad, you hang up your spurs. And you turn to God. You've mentioned the calling, but how did you know? What was it that said, you know what? I am ready for this and and set you on the course that you find yourself on now uh, and at, at seminary. I'm not sure if you're ever really ready for it, um, but you just have to, you have to make a decision if you decide to go. In life, I think this is up and I think you know it because you made the big change. And I'd say this whole podcast is about learning to overcome your fear or control your fear to do something great or to do something different. For me, the calling was different. I, I realized the uh, the priests in the parishes through the sacraments were healing a lot of people. And they were healing people that we couldn't seem to heal in the army. So we helped a lot of people overseas, but what we weren't doing is figuring out how to help our own soldiers. And I watched these priests do it. And I just remember asking God, it's like, I'm single, you know, I'm not married, is this something that you've been out that you want me to do? And it was something that's like, maybe I'm on the wrong team. Maybe it's time that I hang up my spurs. And that's what the journey's all about. Because at that point, you have to ask, uh, is this something for you? And either the way God works is what we call secondary effects. Is this that doors open or do- doors close? Rarely does anybody get an apparition or a bolt of lightning, the, you know, the St. Paul experience of uh, conversion. Doors open and people will tell you, 
you know, people will tell you whether or not you're seated. And throughout the whole work, I think I had one person who she thought maybe, but I never had told anybody that uh, no, nobody ever came up to you and said no. Majority of the time it was people who thought it was intriguing and they said we could see it. I remember I had a long conversation with this one general and he, we were talking. He just, he finally just looked at me and said, can I just stop this conversation? I said, sure. Why are you so different? And they're like, what? What do you mean? I'm, all I'm doing is explaining Korea to you and what we need. He says, no, no. There's something different about you. I, you people like you just don't come in my office. And I was kind of uh, really confused. And I was like, I, I don't know. It's like, I like my job. He says, well, I can tell that you like your job, but what is it about you that's different? And I said, I don't know. Maybe I want to be, when I retire, I hope to become a priest. And he said, that's it. I can see you becoming a priest. You know, those are kind of the affirmations that I get that, you know, I'm on the right track. And timing is everything. Uh, what, uh, what, if any, challenges have you encountered during your transition into seminary and, and, how, and how are you overcoming them? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the it's always the little things. It's not not it's not the big things. Like I know a lot of people ask me, what's it like being a colonel in the army and going into seminary? And for me it was like no big deal. And we talked about this. I didn't sign up for the army. So if I had signed up for the army, I'd want the rank, the uh the prestige, the accoutrements, the applause, the the job titles. That was never really important to me when I was in the army because I really wanted to be a civil affairs guy. So it just happened as I promoted through the ranks of uh, uh, positions in civil affairs that I got promoted with the rank. So giving that up wasn't that hard. So as I tell people, the only time I missed the army was during the uh, evacuation of uh, Kabul because that's where I wanted to be. But it's the little things. The little things that everybody told me that you should worry about that I said, oh, no, I'm different. And one of it is age doesn't age is a big deal. As you get older, learning things become harder. You get set in your ways. There are many days in which I go through this. I go, you know what? I could just quit and go have a mai tai on the beach, and, not, <laughs> and just not deal with this. But you know that you know. But the grit comes in that the army gave you to say, you know what? The you just got to slug through it like you do everything else, like whether it's airborne school or anything else. You just, uh, or deployment, long deployment, just you got to grit through it. Um, the other things that I learned was that I, people thought it was going to be an issue is, look, you're going to be a lot of young people. And I said, yeah, that's true. But in the army, I was, as a colonel, you mentored a lot of people. You mentored a lot of young soldiers. So, you know, when to engage with them, be their friends, when not, when to pull back because you're just different, generational difference. Like you and I talked about Mork and Mindy. Half these guys at the seminary don't know who Morgan Reagan is. <laughs> They're not going to get that reference, man. <laughs> I mean, I had, a, I had a friend named Noel, and he was a doctor. And he had no idea who Dr. Noel was. <laughs> and then we had a conversation <laughs> once. Yeah, we had a conversation once, and they they were going to go see Dr. Strange, and I thought they said Dr. Strange Love. I said, that's a great thing. <laughs> that's I love that movie. Peter Sellers. Like, who's Peter Sellers? I said, I didn't realize you guys watched black and white movies. They're like, really? <laughs> So you can go, oh, Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Exactly. And they're like, they're, they're like, what are you talking about? We're going to go see Dr. Strange. And then I look for like, he's that guy. And so, uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so you, you, you have that generational book, Brinson. Yeah, listen, man, I told my kids about how I used to be cool and how I hung out backstage at the MTV Music Awards with Don Henley. You know what they said? Who's Don Henley? I thought they were going to say, what is uh, MTV? 
Yeah. Oh man. You know, but I'm listening to you that 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 the experience you're having now cuz if I had to guess if you are not the oldest cat in seminary right now, you've got to be one of them. One of the second uh, oldest. Uh, sec- second oldest. Okay. The gap is different. I mean, you get past a little bit then there's a huge seminary's gotten really really young. But go ahead, I'm sorry, yeah. I interrupted you. No, no. I I mean, I'm listening to you and you're talking about balancing the, you know, your spiritual and religious uh uh path that you're on and and even your responsibilities as a seminarian with your past experiences and responsibilities as a military officer. I mean, I mean you said it. Leading young men in the service is has given you it sounds like the uh the the tools, the skill set and the experience to deal with the chaps that you've got uh around you as you go through seminary together. That's true. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of mentorship, but you know, this is where Experience, discretion, and age helps. So it's like you, you realize that, hey, unless they ask for that advice, don't give it. Or if there's a situation that comes out, and one of the things that I've noticed that our young people are missing um, is that they're missing resiliency. I think two weeks ago, I was trying to explain to somebody, it's like, think of life as three circles. You got operations on top, the sexy stuff, then you got administration, and you got logistics at the bottom. And up here is when you you say the mass, you engage with people, you're administering the sacraments, you're uh, you're pursuing your priesthood. That's discernment. That's where God's gonna. That's the air. if you're having issues with the administration or you're having issues for your colleagues, that's pers- that's personnel or that's logistics. That's grit. That's not God telling you to quit because you can't get along with somebody. That's you learning to have grit to get through it. So you can then discern what's up in the circle. And, uh, you know, if you can see life through those three circles, you're going to find that takes care of about 90% of the friction. That's, that's the experience I learned in the Army was to think of those three, three uh, circles. And that's what I bring over to help them uh, kind of uh, get through it. And I remember one guy said, he said, that was a great way to understand the sermon. I never really thought about that. And that's, that's my way of being able to pass on what I had in the military to these young guys. So much of our friction is that we don't get in the shoes of somebody else and see through their eyes and see where they're coming from. Yeah, uh, that, right. And I always tell people because I've been in some, because I was a planner, I was like, before you even get into the, in the discussion or the argument, always ask what the terms of reference are. What are the definitions? Because I can tell you the way you see life and see things is not the way they do. And if you can get into their, uh, if you can get in their shoes and see through their eyes, you're going to realize, oh, that's what's going on here. And then you can adjust your thinking and address it with them. And then you can usually have a conversation. You know, Atticus Fitch from, uh, from To Kill a Mockingbird said it best. Don't judge a man until you've been in his shoes and walked around in it for a while. I love how you're talking about all these really, these earthly uh, factors that you are relying on, on your spiritual journey. It's one of the things I love about being Catholic, right? Our faith has to be matched with good works, right? Uh, you know, thoughts and prayers, but what are you going to do about it, right? Uh, uh, so, so the thing that I love about our faith, it sounds remarkably like you don't just love it, you're relying on it too, as you navigate this time as a seminarian. Well, that's true. I mean, well, I mean, just being Catholic, is the reason why you have joy in life in the world or what you're doing. Otherwise, it's just duty. 
right? You go back to what Kant said of philosophy, duty. You know, Kierkegaard tries to take it to the next level of existentialism of, you know, the religious experience of faith. But for us, we know that. It's like when you love somebody. And the way you love God is you love your neighbor. You don't go around going, mm, 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 I love you, God. No, you take care of the neighbor uh, next to you who might be homeless or something, or it might be your, it might be the guy next to you. Just say hi or engage with him. The military taught me servant leadership was my duty, but Catholicism taught me how to love it. And I loved it because Christianity has always said man was made in the image of God. So if you're going to be disrespectful to the to your fellow man, then you're going to be disrespectful for God. So you you got to learn to love, and that's how I learned to love my troops because I saw them as children of God, not because of my duty. I love that. And I, listen, I've said it before on the pod, man. Uh, you know, in talking about my faith, uh, God charges us to love mm-hmm. His brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters. Never said we had to like them, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't have to start a bowling team with any with everybody, but I got to love my brothers and sisters, man, and help them where I can. And sometimes the best help I can give is keep my nose out of it and, or, or you know, not, not share what I think, uh, but do, do what I can to serve uh, the, the person to my left and the person to my right. Cameron, what advice would you give to anyone thinking of making a big major life change, particularly uh, around a career, because my brother, y- you are making the biggest one I've uh, I've heard of in a long time. So what would you tell someone that is giving serious consideration to, you know, looking at over the edge and thinking, I don't see a net, but I feel like I need to jump. I always tell people, look, don't make decisions based on emotion. You know, like all of a sudden you have this emotional high and like, I got to do it and I got to do it right now. Decisions aren't based on impetuousness. You got to be, um, you got to think it through. And there's nothing wrong with a checklist. The pros and cons, you know, write out, the, write it out because that's going to kind of like explain to you how how things are going to go. And then you have to make a decision. I know a lot of people who just want to think about things, but at some point you have to make that decision. And you know, if you're a Christian, God will use you. In any decision that you make, it might be tougher in other areas, but every decision you make. And then what I also say is also make sure that you develop resiliency mechanisms because um, every success that I've ever done in life is because it's based on multiple failures. If you can uh, grow from your failures then and be resilient, then you're going to be able to do whatever you want and you'll be able to make the decisions you want. Top-notch advice, man. That is top-notch advice. And that's as good a place as any to start landing the plane. Uh, before we wrap it up, a couple of things. Uh, what are you psyched about, my brother? What's on your radar that you are uh, looking forward to, excited about? Uh, what's uh, what's good, man? I mean, I'm looking forward to becoming, uh, if, if God allows me to, to become a priest because I can't wait to get into uh, into the parishes and start engaging with people and bringing people who want, to, who want to be saved, to be saved. I mean, uh, I, think, I think San Francisco's a great area. The reason why I chose this place was because I was reading an article on the most unhappy people, young people, were in San Francisco. And it's like, what in the world? It's like, they got all the, they're the most paid, they have the best jobs, they got the most time, they get the most leisure, and yet they're extremely unhappy. 
And so I said, okay, let's, let me introduce them to this way, way of lifestyle and see if they find that to be, uh, to be a lot more attractive. The more we give, the more we're going to be happy. And I think we got it backwards in today's society because it's all about what can I get? What do I want? Uh, what is about fulfills my expectation and, and, uh, 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 my space and desires and we forget sometimes what really what really makes us happy is when we give ourselves to others it was uh, a practitioner of islam who said uh service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth that was muhammad ali you know religious uh religious scholars from every tradition always have some good wit and wisdom so well and that guy also had a really good left hook too so uh <laughs> Uh, hey man, what were uh, what were your parents' names? Um, my mother's name was Catherine, and my dad's name was Lloyd. Catherine and Lloyd did a bang up job, man. Uh, and I'm gonna be praying for them, and I'll be praying for you. It's my thing. I love doing it, so I'm gonna do it for them, and I'm gonna do it for you, uh, Cameron. Uh, being friends with you has been one of the most serendipitous and wonderful things that came into my life because of a devotion to a nerdy TV show like Battlestar Galactica. Uh, I'm still I'm still getting a lot out of that show. I started watching it with my son, and he digs it, man. That show holds up. Yeah, a lot of people at the seminary watches that show. They love that show, too. Don't be shy about sharing with your seminarian uh, brothers that uh, – that you played a small hand in there, and uh, and I'll I'll always be glad I was uh, devoted to the show because uh, it brought me a lot of cool things. Not the least of which is my friendship with you. Uh, I'm proud of you, man, and uh, I know fewer better Americans than you, Cameron. So thank you for your service, and thank you for your service. Well, thank you, and uh, same to you. All those compliments go right back to you as well. I love you, and not just as God would have me love you, brother. Thank you for being on flipping on its head. You know those people you know that are just the nicest people ever? Yeah, that's Cameron. And I'm certain if you've been listening this whole time, you feel the same way I do. I want to thank my friend, Colonel Cameron Sellers, a.k.a. Soldier, as I call him. But I can't wait to start calling him Padre as soon as he becomes the Catholic priest. And pay attention to some of the advice he's offered. Because if you are making a career change, man... You could do a lot worse than follow his path. Take the emotion out of it. Make measured decisions. And trust your instincts. They're probably pretty good. This episode has been produced and edited by me, Reese Colchin. The music throughout the show has been a track by a guy I really like. His name is Jess Guy, and it's called Instep. It's off his 2022 album, Macbeth, and you can find it on Spotify or wherever you stream your music. And hey, if you've yet to throw a follow on the show, now's a good time to do it. And also, give us a review, because it helps others find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Flip It On Its Head podcast.